Welcome to Things That Might Kill Us, the podcast about existential risks to humanity. I'm Joe Dobbs. And I'm Alice Langadon. Are robots going to kill us? Will the robots take over? Have I said robots too many times? <laughs> This week, we're talking about artificial intelligence. This is episode two. Um, I'm here with my co-host, Joe, and our guest tonight, uh, Ulrich Frank. Uh, welcome to both. Hi. Hello. Um, we are in Joe's living room. He just cooked a delicious tagine uh, and we are having a Portuguese red wine. So very fancy again. I can't pronounce it, but it says bacalao. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, that's bacalao. I think everything is written in Portuguese I think on, on the bottle. Yeah. So yeah, okay. <laughs> that just sends good quality vibes. It, it tastes good. That's all that yeah, matters. Yeah, that's, that's, that's all that matters. Um, so today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence. Um, We're gonna try and not be too doom and gloom like we were maybe last time talking about nuclear weapons. Oh, I can't promise that. <laughs> uh, we'll try and see what AI can do um, that will let us flourish as a civilization, uh, but what are also the risks. And so Ulrich will uh, discuss with us the sort of military and security uh, implication. So Ulrich is a policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, ECFR, here in London, uh, and a drone expert who just finished a PhD on drone warfare at Oxford. Uh, so we're just gonna dive in, I guess? Great. Okay, so Ulrich, first question, what is artificial intelligence? Yeah, and that of course is a major question. <laughs> I mean, to, to start with, Overall, AI is really nothing more than the idea of intelligence displayed by machines rather than humans or animals. Okay. Like that's the general idea. We're thinking about machines or computers doing activity that we think require intelligence. Um, that being said, artificial intelligence, the way we look at it now, does include different methods. We're talking about things like machine learning, neural networks. You've probably heard about all of these. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a computer scientist, but it's, it's basically a way to create um, machines that display something that we recognize as intelligence. Although it's very funny because that we, we say that, you know, artificial intelligence is around the corner and we keep saying this. And one of the reasons is that somehow this development is not as fast as we would like it to, to um, be. Um, but the other reason is that every time a machine manages to do something that we thought, if it does that, it's an artificial intelligence, we kind of go back and think, oh, that's not really intelligence. I mean, we had this with playing chess, we had this with playing Go. Whenever the machine does something... We're like, yeah. yeah, I can do that, but is that really intelligent? Because I think we is have that, the, the human monopoly on intelligence. Is that an insecurity point on our point from from human perspective? Though? I think to some extent it is. To some extent it also just shows that we don't really know what intelligence really means. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to talk about this, but this is also just a question of, you know, narrow intelligence and general intelligence about, you know, if a machine can do one thing, play chess, play mm -hmm. chess better than anyone else, which of course, you know, um, uh, Deep Blue already can do since since 1996, I think. Um, or if it can play better Go than any, anyone else, does that mean it's more intelligent than a human being that can do so many more things? Yeah, and actually just maybe to have, uh, to make things clear from the beginning, can you tell us a bit about the difference between narrow AI and then more human level AI and super intelligence? Because when we talk about AI, sometimes it's from 
Siri on your iPhone to sort of Skynet and robots invading the Earth. So can you yeah. sort of make things clear from the beginning what we're talking about? Yeah, that's a very important point. We tend to equate everything. I mean, the moment you hear about the chess playing um, or yeah. Go playing computer, you're like, oh my God, the we're all going to die. Uh, exactly, the robots are taking over. Um, yeah, so, so if you like, very broadly speaking, you have three steps. So narrow AI, and that already exists um, and has been for, it has for, for decades really are machines that can do one specific thing. Mm -hmm. um, they're programmed to do one specific thing. Again, play chess, play Go, um, uh, fly a plane, uh, okay. analyze data, all of that kind of thing. And that already exists, and we're going to see more, more like that. Um, and it may have been just programmed to do it, or it may have learned by itself how to do that. But still, it's one, one narrow thing. Um, the, the next thing would be general AI. And here the idea really is that, that it's an AI that can do many things. Um, somewhat like a human or possibly even better than a human because it can play superhuman chess and superhuman go and can fly a plane and can... And do those things at that. the same time? Ideally. Or okay, at least okay. not because the problem at the moment is that neural networks, um, they have something that we call um, uh, catastrophic forgetting which means that a neural network that has learned one task, if you give it another task, it can potentially learn it, but it tends to forget the first one. Okay. So general AI would be Which a system that can do. tend not to do. Exactly. Ideally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can still happen. And that would be general AI. And then you have this idea of super intelligence, or you also heard hear the term singularity, uh, where you have this idea that you may end up in a situation where human create a machine or an artificial intelligence that can then build its own successor, kind of make kids that are even more intelligent than itself and so on. Okay, well, let's get this out of the way because I feel like we're going to spend more time talking about the narrow AI and the general AI. How likely so. is the singularity? How far away <laughs> is it? Do I have time to live in my full life? Or... Should we call our parents now? Yeah. What's the rush with this? Do I need to pay for my pension? <laughs> So number one, I'd say, honestly, impossible to say. They tend to do these surveys of experts. Like, when is the singularity yeah, yeah. going to happen? Yeah. And apparently they think, I mean, experts, whoever they are, think it's like maybe like 2040, 2050. Yeah, I read 3040 for intelligence experts. Yeah, but honestly, I mean, no one, no one knows and it may never happen. I mean, this is, this is really, really the thing. It may never happen at all. And honestly, I mean, out of all the things we're talking about today, this is the thing personally... I'm least worried about number one because so many things with regard to AI are more current and are more dangerous right now and also honestly I mean that may be too doom and gloom but I'm not really sure that humankind is going to make it that far to develop the singularity we may die of you know all the other things you yeah, talk about on exactly. your lovely stay podcast stay tuned for all the episodes <laughs> of our podcast yeah if we ever get there I'll be pleased but yeah. I, I suppose I I wonder whether or not like people like the late great Stephen Hawking, who who's sort of talked about this and mm. other, you know, great thinkers and, and big names, it's almost like an attempt to try and just get us thinking and planning now and just to start thinking about actually the regulatory framework and the way in which we approach existing examples of AI. Yeah. So maybe we should talk a little bit more about those. Mm. And, and and it is a good point that you need to you, you should always think about the worst case scenario, which is good. The the only thing I worry is that so people get really scared by, let's say, the singularity, and then you explain to them what it really means and how likely it is, and then they're like, oh, okay, so that's probably not going to happen, and then they stop caring. So mm -hmm. that's why I'd say, okay, let's talk about the worst-case scenario, but there are like lots of 
possible bad scenarios yeah. before that that we should also worry about. So okay, so it's about finding an in between sort of doing research on AI safety in case there is a super intelligence, but while <laughs> tackling more urgent questions. Okay. Yeah, because also yeah. the way in which we govern the small the smaller examples of AI we have now will impact on the way in which we approach the more you know society changing examples of AI in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and if and if this kind of threat helps to educate people now in a way that, as you say, they approach the current system differently, then then that's certainly helpful. Okay, so answer on, is singularity <laughs> going to kill us? Maybe, we don't know, might be a while, we have other right things now. to worry about first. Yeah, okay. I mean, let, let's just say, I would I would say, you know, is if you talk about, you know, is AI one of the things that might kill us, my answer would very much be like, you know, it might, AI might kill us, it might save us, I mean, in terms of, you know, artificial intelligence developing solutions to climate change. Yeah. But what we do know and what is most important is that it's, it's most likely going to quite fundamentally change the world around us. So I'm thinking about this more like the um, discovery or the control of fire by humankind or the invention of electricity. Mm-hmm. That kind of fundamental changes. And of course, you know, out of fire came people being burned at the stakes and out of... Mm-hmm. Um, out of electricity came the electric chair, mm-hmm. but that's not what all of this was yeah. about. So. so the big takeaway, I guess, is that AI probably won't kill us, but it might impact on the things that, mm. that we should be thinking about now. And can you tell us a bit about which states and organizations and private sector bodies are active in the space of AI today or leading AI at the moment? That's actually one of the questions I find most interesting um, for several reasons. So. Number one, and I think you phrased the question correctly because you ask about states on the one hand, but also private institutions. Mm -hmm. And I think the interesting bit about AI is that I think private institutional, private companies um, are extremely important here. So I work on on military uh, stuff, right? Um, And it's quite clear that over the last few decades, let's say since well, DARPA, um, the the Defense um, Research Agency in the US was created in in the 50s, great technological advances have tended to come out of military research. Mm-hmm. Think about um, the internet or GPS, GPS. Yeah. exactly. So these were all stuff, these were all things that were developed for the internet and then came into the, the society, which of course meant that these were originally invented by, or at least financed by and hence controlled by states. And with AI, that's only true to some extent. So I think the first takeaway for the listeners really is that private companies are extremely powerful. Um, And the private companies I'm thinking of, of course, are first and foremost Google, um, but also uh, companies such as Facebook, um, Palantir, for instance, which Mm -hmm. is a a data, um, big data analysis society, uh, company. Um, And then they're kind of equivalent uh, equivalent elsewhere, um, for instance, in China with um, um, Baidu or Tencent or uh, companies such as that. But of course, the companies that I just mentioned were from two countries, the US yeah, and yeah. China, because of course you do have a state element um, uh, to all of that. And I really do think that at this point, um, if there is something like an AI race, or if, if there's a race to develop the best AI and possibly general AI, um, it's really the US and China that are most focused on that, number one, and then also best placed to come up with that. So last September in 2017, um, 
Russia's President Vladimir Putin told a group of school children. He always knows he's crowded. Yeah, he always knows the crowd. He told a group of school children that the, the country that rules AI mm-hmm. in the future um, will rule the world. So I, I guess, yeah, you're right in saying that um, the private sector companies are, are you know, the key players in this in terms of the development of these products and these technologies. Um, but states obviously have their eye on on this. So, and I think you very much so. Yeah, you mentioned something akin to like an arms race. Is that something that we're, vis- we're you know we're seeing at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as arms race because arms race always has this escalatory idea to it. I mean, you, know, you basically have a have an action and then you have a reaction and then the other part reacts again. At this point, you just have countries all over the world, and really, there is no country left at this point that hasn't realized that AI is kind of important. So, all countries all over the world are trying to develop some kind of AI and trying to finance AI research. And just, you know, as a, as a few examples, it's not just, of course, uh, the US and China. In Europe, you just had um, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, who said he's going to invest 1.5 billion euro uh, in the next five years, so over his his mandate in AI research. Um, you have AI mentioned in the German Coalition Treaty, where they also said we want to be in, in AI uh, hub or leader or something like that. I mean, India is, is investing lots in AI. The United Arab Emirates have just entered, uh, just opened a center with 500 experts. So all over the world, you really have, have countries working on that. I wouldn't go so far as saying it's an arms race, especially, and this is important, we, we kind of, we, we do equate AI very quickly with com- conflict and military, and I work on these things, but AI broadly is, is everything, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking, again, electricity, fire. These are the kind of comparisons we should be drawing. So this, this can influence um, the labor market, um, uh, healthcare, uh, everything, really. So not, not all of this is, is focused, or not, not, not only the majority of this is focused toward conflict, toward war, toward, toward the military. And we had a, a, a quick chat uh, before recording about the access to data and mm. whether data is the sort of new raw material and the thing that states will want to have access to to be able to develop AI more quickly. Can you maybe say a word about that and how this also impacts how maybe China and Europe um, deal with AI differently? Mm, mm. Yeah, so you hear a lot about data being the new oil or the new currency or all of that. I don't know what the best comparison is, but what is clear that the way that AI is being developed at the moment, the best way to develop AI is with lots and lots of data, um, such as, you know, user search histories, mm-hmm. such as CAPTCHAs, you know, the things where you always need to say, um, is this a car? Click on the, the panels that have oh, cars. I this wonder what that was about. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. It's not just to prove that you're a robot, yeah. as they pretend. Yeah. It also helps them with image, image recognition. Oh. Um, oh. So, um, okay, this is actually a mind blown right <laughs> now. I do, I do sometimes feel like when we're having these conversations, they will end up with me like wearing a tinfoil hat, yeah. sat in my cupboard, you know, like not wanting to do anything. Well, you're going to laugh, but I'm trying not to use Google anymore. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, things that might kill us podcast does not. Deny Google and not yeah. we don't say we should, but if sponsorship opportunities are still, we, we will consider it. Yeah. We are very open minded. So very good. And as, an, and as I said, they're actually doing amazing work, mm-hmm. and they are also hiring the right people to work to think about the ethics and all of that. So this is all important. So right, we were talking about data being the currency. So AI, the way it works now, um, is best. 
functions best if it has a lot of data to work on. I should mention that that's not the only and exclusive way to do this. Increasingly, we're, I mean, we experts are working on AI that can learn almost without data if you just give them the, the parameter of where they need to operate, but it's much harder. So data is incredibly important. And that poses a problem to European firms. Mm -hmm because in Europe, we value our data privacy, which I very much and wholeheartedly agree with, and which I think is extremely important. But at this point in the development, it's problematic because in the US and especially in, in places such as China, um, companies, especially those that have state support can get access to, to treasure troves of, of data really, mm -hmm. um, and in a way that European companies can't. I would hope that that could actually lead European firms and developers to possibly try to find ways to work around this, which could then mm -hmm. you know, create new kinds of, of AI and all of that. But that, that, that is a that problem. But also it's about a, you know, public awareness about what that data is being used for. I, oh, yeah. I think that most, I mean, most people I know, most people I think in, in society would, would be willing to, for their data to be used for certain you know, developments as long as they were aware of what was happening. And it was, we had a bit more of a public understanding of what was going on. But I think it was and interesting. if it can be um, privatized? Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the thing. I think people don't mind. And actually, people sometimes deliberately help um, uh, learning algorithms. I mean, I don't know whether you've seen this, but there's uh, on the Internet, they kind of ask you, you know, draw a duck and you draw, draw a duck. And if 50,000 million people do that, the computer can learn how to how to draw dark. So I don't think that people would mind so much helping that. The problem always is to what extent is the data I'm giving them, giving them information about me personally. Yeah. yeah. As long as it's anonymized. Exactly. Anonymized. Yeah. So, and so. You mentioned, you mentioned Facebook earlier, earlier on as one of the companies working on this. And obviously at the time of recording this, we've just had an awful lot of hearings in the U S and, and talks in the UK about the role of Facebook in, in data in particular in, in the, uh, the shaping of elections and, enormous scandal at the moment how is that impacting do you think on the way in which states in particular are thinking about regulation regulation we've talked a bit today already about how states are actively going to try and support the development of ai mm. but where are we going to get to about the regulation of these of these products because i think that um you know we are, we are struggling at the moment in, internationally to deal with the technologies we've already got mm. given the pace of change how are we going to be able to regulate these um artificial intelligence if in 10 years time or in 20 years time or you know if we get that far um, in 50 years time when we're talking about an even more transformative artificial intelligence yeah i'm afraid i'm i don't know and from what i've seen i'm not convinced we're up to that task i mean the, the problem really is that we are talking about something very broad so regulation the question about regulation depends about what exactly you're talking about. And a lot of issues can honestly be solved by um, uh, answers such as, you know, making sure that, that the, the privacy is guaranteed, um, uh, not, not connecting everything, um, uh, anonymized data, all of that. And I think we're going to see more regulation like that. But uh, here I speak more about the kind of military AI. In my conversations with those people that in the end will have to create the regulations, i.e. political decision makers, I have to say, and I'm, I'm, I'm unfair to those that do understand it, but I have to say that overall my impression very much was that political decision makers 
barely understand mm-hmm. the issue and barely understand why existing regulations most likely won't work. Mm-hmm. So at least when it comes to arms control, the approach very much is we have we have means of arm control. I mean, there's all these treaties, etc. Let's just amend them. Let's let's adapt them to AI. And the problem is that I don't think that that's possible. That mm-hmm. doesn't work like that. And and I'm worried that most decision makers, most regulators are still at that stage, which is why I think, you know, we need to talk about this yeah. way, way more and, and more between those people that develop the system. So the computer scientists, those people that may have to regulate it, those people that may use them. I mean, again, in the military sense, military operators, all of that. I think it's important to bring them together to really understand what we're even talking about. Okay. Which is actually a perfect transition to the second part of this discussion, which we want to be more about uh, could AI kill us, will AI kill us. Uh, Here we've made clear that it's not about machines or robots rebelling against humans, uh, but it's more about the use that humans will make of the new tools at their disposal. Mm -hmm. Um, So making sure that the machine understands our human goals, but also how humans use those machines. And as Joe was saying, some tech leaders and scientists, um, Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, etc., um, seem to be warning us about the dangers of AI, that it's sort of a Pandora's box. And once we open it, we need to be very clear as to how we're going to um, deal with it. And we need to take action now. Uh, so can you maybe say a word about how you think artificial intelligence is going to change international security or the definition of conflict? Mm. Uh, I just want to, before, before you do, be the first one to use the term killer robots. <laughs> Done. And I'm just going to go Check. back to... So the jealous you're the one. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll say Slaughterbots later. Slaughterbots. Oh, oh, my God. You've taken all the good ones. It's funny because I actually really hate the term killer robot. And ages ago, I wrote pieces saying, no, we shouldn't do that. And because of Twitter, because it's such a great hashtag, I use yeah. it sometimes now as well. I, and I feel you bad. I know. I also... You do, you do a thing about... Um, you know, calling out the same headlines over and over again. <gasps> the yeah. Game of Drones. Yeah, Game of Drones. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I count that one. Yes, yes, yes. Cause that's a that's a headline I don't want to see anymore. Every media <laughs> person everyone listening. Everyone be warned. Yeah, she's, she's pointing at the at the recorder right now. <laughs> exactly. Her. I'm naming and shaming this on on the internet. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so, what impact do you think AI will have on conflict and international security? Yes. Uh, very good question. So, thinking about this. I would say, so number one, and that was actually Elon Musk who said this very recently, um, he said that it's likely that we may see a conflict because countries want AI superiority. And he even said that's going to cause World War III. I wouldn't go that far. Mm-hmm. But as we, we talked about earlier, this is something every country now wants. Uh, this is something everyone is investing in and is interested in. And um, you know, when something like that happens, that can create conflict in and of itself. So it's not, it, it, it basically has nothing to do with AI as such. It's just the new cool thing that everyone wants and that can create conflict. So that would be number one. Um, more likely, the thing I'm most concerned about really is conflicts caused by the results of AI on societies. And I'm thinking mainly about things like AI and automation causing widespread unemployment and Mm -hmm. hence discontent. And that, of course, can lead to revolutions, nationalist governments taking over, etc. So that would be a longer term impact. 
Um, yeah, but I mean that that would be a conflict basically created okay. by AI or by the by the consequences of AI. Well, I suppose if we talk about you know certain developments in the Western world at the moment being in some way caused by you know rapid deindustrialization, mm-hmm. then the way in which AI, if it, if it came about very quickly, could impact on the future of work and on how many people are exactly. working. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if we don't find a way to incorporate um, those people back into the economy in some way, then yeah, we could see, I can see exactly how, yeah. what you're saying. And that's I- incredibly tricky because there are all these, I mean, there are great studies about this. The problem is that no one really knows. So there are a lot of, so some studies like suggest that 30% of the people could be out of work. And which may be true, but the yeah. question always is: Will there new work be, uh, be created? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, this is a discussion as old as you know, humankind thinking about the labor market. I mean, maybe. I'm still holding up for fully automated luxury communism. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then and then even if people really are out of work and don't create new things, and we're really good at creating new things. I mean, who, who would have predicted the job of YouTuber? Um, you know, tw- twenty not years not ago. <laughs> Um, so, so are we re-employing these people, or if we aren't, are we coming up with new solutions? So, but but this is a real danger because I think this is something we're seeing now, um, and and this could lead to discontent yeah. and hence conflict. And maybe that's something that we discussed less because when we think about you know war and artificial intelligence, we think about killer robots, but we don't think about pe- lots of people losing their jobs and then growing so discontent that it creates actual like even. 20th century style conflict exactly. and not, you know... It doesn't mean yeah. that the war is then fought with killer robots, yeah, as exactly. you say. Yeah, it yeah. can be everything, really, but it may be caused by the thing that we discussed as AI, as AI earlier. Mm-hmm. But talking about killer robots, so one of another conflict scenario I have is conflict caused by AI used by the military. So I'm thinking specifically of the scenario, and I'm pretty sure you've all heard this, um, these kind of accidents where um, a, a Russian commander was told the US is sending nuclear weapons uh, to Russia, do you want to fire back? And the mm-hmm. Russian commander said at the time, I don't think that's true, that sounds weird, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to fire back. And we could see a situation like that where these kind of processes are automated, although I should mention that most people agree that we shouldn't you know, make uh, nuclear weapons yeah. all automated yeah. or, or autonomized. <laughs> exactly, but these somehow. kind of things where it's basically, where it could be a, 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 a glitch, a bug, um, a, an accident, someone doing something wrong. I mean, we've, we've seen the the uh, missile warning in Hawaii, yeah. you know, it can be a weird combination of, of human error and machine error, anything like that, where you have a, a conflict created by AI employed by the military. And that can, of course, be incredibly scary and and uh, uh, have huge impacts. I think yeah. you said something in, a, in an article you wrote last year um, for the European Council on Foreign Relations about how technologies are rarely revolutionary themselves. It is the way in which humans interpret them. Mm. You talked about how doctrine is what, what is what is revolutionary, not technologies. Could you talk a little bit about that and how it relates to how it might relate to artificial intelligence? Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder how it relates to artificial intelligence. So I was thinking there's this concept of revolutions in military affairs in, in military studies. And this is this idea of, you know, once in a while you get um, new technologies kind of in, invented, put on the battlefield, and they can really change how wars are being fought. But what has been become clear is that it rarely is, as you say, the technology in and of itself, um, but rather someone taking the technology and thinking, hmm, maybe I could adopt the way I fight to make this more useful. Mm-hmm. And a classic example of that is the tank um, that has had been on the battlefield 
um, for several decades because the, be, before the Germans came up with the Blitzkrieg idea where they used the tank in a way that it was extremely successful for them by combining it with radio and other things. Um, and, and I think there's something to this when we talk about drones. On AI, I think AI is, is bigger and more fundamental because AI isn't just a military technology, isn't just a technology, it's, always, it's, it's almost a way of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think this may be more fundamental, more akin to the Industrial Revolution or something like that. So AI as such, I wouldn't equate to that. When it comes to the military, however, you could possibly say that, let's take autonomous weapons or you know AI employed by the military, you really need to think about what are the kind of doctrines you could develop mm -hmm. around that to make that particularly useful. Because it's never a good idea to just take a new technology and do everything the way you did it before, just with the new technology. That's, that's, that's not great. You need to come up with something else. Well, a concern I've got is related to something that you mentioned before about Elon Musk saying that there is a race for superiority that might cause a war. And to a degree, effective deterrence and, and a, 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 is about a good understanding of the balance of power and about other, the other side's capabilities. Mm. And as we rush to demonstrate capabilities, if we look at you know, the advent of nuclear weapons and the advent of, um, of tanks, actually, that you mentioned in your article and you just mentioned now, people don't know how scared to be of tanks and how tanks can be useful in, in battle until the first time that they are used effectively. Mm -hmm. The same with nuclear weapons. I wonder whether or not, had the United States not used nuclear weapons in the Second World War against Japan, whether or not we would have been, a, been as scared and as understanding of the potential for mutual issue of destruction. So as we race to demonstrate the potential of artificial intelligence, and as we race to demonstrate the ability of autonomous weapons to potentially change the balance of power, and I say we in a global sense, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't, I'm not saying which country would do that, my worry is that then we get into an escalation crisis. I, yeah, I would agree that at that point it's already too late, largely. Um, yeah, it, it, I, guess, I guess it depends very much on what kind of weapon you're talking about, what kind of weapon you're seeing. Um, but it is true that the moment you do have one country use a fully autonomous weapon system in a war, probably going to be much harder for other countries not to follow suit although sometimes that leads to bans i mean we haven't talked about bans at all yet we have talked about regulation more broadly but but it's different for military um uh things but of course there is a is a big campaign to to ban what is called killer robots mm -hmm. namely weapons that that autonomously decide to kill which we don't have exactly like that yet so, so um, yeah. just to jump in here, I think maybe some people listening have seen sort of that video from the campaign to stop killer robots about... The slaughterbots. Yeah, yeah, the slaughterbots, <laughs> yeah. again. Uh, sort of like those, this swarm of drones with explosives that are sent to assassinate people, which then also create the risk of states using them, but also of maybe terrorist groups using, using them. Um, mm. How far are we from this technology? Is this sort of a bit science fiction to make the point that we need to take action now or can this happen in five ten years and then it will be so cheap to manufacture those mini drones that every terrorist group or crazy person can just get one and carry its own assassination yeah so that video if you haven't seen it and um, we should link to it somewhere because it, mm -hmm. it certainly is will, yeah. worth um watching it was it's very well done it's super scary 
Um, I I take some issues with it, but there are there are some good ideas. Um, so, so number one, the technology as they show it didn't seem very far fetched to me because in okay. the end, you know, drone swarms were already are already being tested, and mm-hmm. in the laboratory, ex- yeah, pretty much they exist. I mean, we haven't seen them on the battlefield okay. that way yet, but there are crazy videos out there. Um, the ETH Zurich, by the way, is doing great work on on, on swarms and drone swarms working together. Um, to 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 build stuff and, and things like that. So drone swarms is, is certainly coming. Um, in the video, they showed drones. I think using facial recognition yes. to identify targets. Yes. That also makes a lot of sense. I mean, because Facebook yeah. was already really good at identifying your face. So put that okay, on. Okay, so the technology is there. Facial recognition is there. <laughs> Sorry. What I'm else? Just, I mean... just to be clear, in case Facebook want to sponsor us. <laughs> We're not Shoot. saying that Facebook have killer drones. We will well, also yeah. consider you Facebook. It's, I'm, it's I'm a horrible guest. I like burn you for forever. For okay, no, so the, the techno- we're almost there in terms of technology. Facial recognition exists. So, I mean, well, what keeps what keeps us from having them? Well, well, the things I thought were interesting there in the in the video was it um, a non-state actor that controlled them and killed off their the people yes. that were like demonstrating against them or was it the state yes I because both, it, I both are interesting so number one one thing i find extremely interesting is that for some reason i get asked a lot about non-state actors and non-state actors yeah. use of all of these uh, things i was actually about to ask you that yeah which is which is a fair question but it doesn't strike me as the most important one because what we're talking about here now is actually like rather Mm. rather well-developed tech i mean non-state actors are using you know drones and stuff that they buy off amazon but but the kind of things we're talking about as we said this is going to be like you know the us or china or google or maybe the fear i mean when i watched the video the fear that i had was that these drones would become so common that it would be very cheap to manufacture them. Yes. And that then everyone can, I mean, for a very small amount of yeah. money, you can you can buy a very effective weapon that you just sort of send on, like, killing rampage without having any accountability or anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're starting to mix things, but that's also already happening to some extent so this is not this is not drones so drones the kind of drones you and i can buy off amazon are surprisingly sophisticated and are already being used by non-state actors for um well terrorist purposes really um so so daesh and all of these groups and ukrainian militants and you know lots of different players really just non-state actors in general are using them um in 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 conflict zones so that we're already seeing but that's not ai that's just you know but, but yeah, but um, what I'm saying is just, I'm not most scared by the non-state actors. I'm most scared by states, and especially a certain type of state, namely totalitarian systems, having these kind of, mm-hmm. uh, these kind of capabilities. The kind of, you know, face recognition, um, uh, all, all access to all data. I mean, this is getting into a very minority report territory. And there are already articles that you may have seen about journalists um, going around in Beijing and saying, let's see how long it takes for the the Beijing police to find me using just Facebook recognition. It was an article like trying that out and the answer is not very long. <laughs> so this is already being being used. Um, so not necessarily to fight a war, but even just to control your own Exactly, population. exactly. So again, talking about the things that are really scary before the conflict scenario that we talked about and there were of different likelihoods, I'd say this the type of control AI can give to totalitarian regimes 
is incredibly scary and already here to quite some extent. And this is why I have a I'm very worried about the potential for arms control on this issue mm -hmm. for, for several reasons. One being that if you think about nuclear weapons as, the, as a good example of arms control, nuclear weapons have almost only an, a, a use internationally in terms of your relations with other states about deterrence and um, potentially winning a, a large scale war. So you can kind of you can accept that it is a, a negotiation between states about nuclear weapons. When it comes to when it comes to technologies like this, obviously you're, you're talking about how artificial intelligence and the way in which it intersects with um, military or you know strength capabilities here has a domestic control issue as well. Countries like let's just name names, countries like China and like Russia may not be willing to give up those capabilities domestically, especially when we're also considering that private sector organisations have have these these um, mm. these capabilities as well. And then also. I think in terms of other things that you need for arms control is is a relative amount of strategic stability. And this is also required. We've traditionally done arms control when technologies develop in terms of over decades rather than over what we're seeing at the moment, which yes, is years yeah. and may get even faster. So how are we going to have arms control on this issue when we've got them having a domestic use, when there is enormous private sector engagement as well, but also when there are when the technologies are changing at such a pace that no legislator and no policymaker can follow. And existing arms control arrangements on conventional weapons that we've got now and also on nuclear weapons are falling apart. And they are largely agreed between the United States and Russia and to a certain extent between the West generally and Russia. I'm just very killing pessimistic. The mood again. I'm killing <laughs> the mood again and I'm sorry, but I, I am worried about this. And I just I think combined with the fact that you know that you rightly say, Erica, that at the start that our policymakers don't necessarily have an understanding. I mean, hell, we don't necessarily have a really... Yeah, I'm not claiming that I have the answers, <laughs> but it needs to be very clear. It's yeah. very confusing, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's why organisations like uh, like ours and this incredible <laughs> podcast is trying to bring these things <laughs> to your attention. You're welcome to the world. <laughs> You're welcome to the world. And I really hope people are listening, because not that we are going to have the answers, but this is I something think, that we need to think about. I think everyone should start thinking about this. Yeah. I, I mean, what you are describing is what we call dual use, right? Mm. Um, and actually, I, I always think that with AI, it's not about dual use, it's about triple and quadruple, mm. and I don't know how many uses, because this is really impacting everything. So the idea of dual use items is are things that can be used for military purposes, but also have a usage outside of the military. And of course, this is very true with, with AI. So... And there are a lot of people or some people actually saying that we shouldn't talk about military AI because that doesn't make sense because every AI that you're developing can be used for military purposes to some extent. So what you describe is true and it's going to make arms control harder because everyone is going to continue working on AI and even companies that have nothing to do with military whatsoever are going to develop systems that can be useful for the military afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, honestly, I don't think that there's a way to stop that. Which means that I don't think we need to think so much about arms control in the sense of, you know, people going into countries and controlling what kind of things they have. I think what we need, if we really want to make sure that, that the kind of killer robot things aren't being used, is more along of the lines of, an agreement that this is a bad idea, meaning an agreement leading to some kind of ban. So this is really this idea of saying mm -hmm. humankind says AI is, is super useful, we can do lots of great things with it, but let's not give 
machines the decision over life and that because yeah. that that's a bad idea but it's almost not possible to control that I'd actually you make, you make a good point you remind me of i was having a conversation last week with um with a woman called alex bell who's an arms control expert um based in washington she used to work at the state department and and she made a good point that we're talking about nuclear weapons there's actually nuclear arms control here that that an agreement i think it was 1973 between uh, the then soviet union and the united states just it was a very small um it was a very small agreement just to say a nuclear war should not be fought and mm-hmm. it is a bad idea and obviously that has no verification attached to it it has no um you know implications there's no you can't by the point you actually broke that agreement you don't have to worry about international law anyway <laughs> but actually i think that you're right yeah. actually saying that it's just an agreement of states an agreement of all interested parties to start saying okay this is something that where is the line what yeah. some maybe we don't want to all agree that we should never use ai in, in the military space, but where do we draw the line? And yeah. I think actually, given that we've got a pretty good idea about how far these things could go, and because we're already talking about potential singularity, that is pretty much an extreme, where do we want to draw the line? And I think actually that could be something that doesn't require an enormous technical understanding, but it's just a will on, on the part of all. And this is right. happening to some extent, right? I mean, there's the, the CCW, the con- Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, um, and they have taken on the issue of killer robots um, as, as I think they call it there as well, or sorry, uh, lethal autonomous uh, weapons or laws. And um, just the other week, they met again in Geneva talking about this. I mean, these these uh, these talks have stalled quite a bit. They they've started a few years ago, and we were kind of hoping that they would lead to something more quickly, and they haven't really. But a lot of people there, especially non-state groups, again, campaign to stop killer robots, all of these interest groups are very much working toward what you just described. Yeah. And this isn't really, this isn't about stopping AI. We're not going to stop AI. Mm-hmm. Also, we shouldn't. I mean, again, you know, the fire and electricity, that was mm. rather good for humankind. Yeah. I mean, it also had its bad um, results, but but overall, that that's good for humankind. So if AI can be that, good. But let's make sure we're not going too far into the, the military realm here. Okay, well, I think we settled on something there that, could say was mildly positive um <laughs> not all bad but um actually i think coming on to the sort of the ethics of this um and actually we, could, we should start by going through the, the military part but i think more generally yeah. is is a is a weapon that is autonomous potentially actually more ethical if we can if we can tell the the weapon if we can tell the system exactly what we want to do with it mm. and it isn't um victim to the same kind of um, you know, fear and bias of, of a human user potentially we could talk about that more ethically and actually and more generally would it be that bad a thing if robots took over and we had artificial intelligence if we told if we entered the right kind of conditions for those for those machines should we be should yeah. we be frightened yeah, that is a very philosophical question. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is the last part. We're moving into this philosophical. Is I need, I need to have a bit, a bit of wine while we ponder that question. Um, so, to be completely honest, I haven't made up my mind on this issue of would it necessarily be bad or unethical or immoral to have machines that make decisions over life and death. It sounds horrible. And basically every every person that works on that that I've talked to is 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 opposed to that. Um, but overall, I'm I'm I, I, to be honest, I haven't really made up my mind on that yet because, and you hinted on that, 
there could be situations where it it actually gives us better results because humans are actually not that great at warfare we we make terrible decisions we um uh, commit war crimes um we do all these kind of things and then and you could argue that machines won't and there are some uh, computer scientists that have made the argument that you could program the laws of wars and these kind of things into machines. I should, however, notice that they have retracted, you know, over the years that claim. You know, a f- mm-hmm. few years ago they said we're totally going to program that in, and now it's like, nah, maybe not, and it's harder, etc. So, so we're not really really sure whether that, that works or not. Um, and the issue remains that that machines, especially artificially intelligent machines, are no longer infallible. We haven't talked about this yet, but but AI is very different from the kind of a computer that we know now, where that, that basically never makes a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you type in two plus two and it always says four no matter what. And AI isn't really that way. AI can can give you the right answer fifty thousand times and the fifty thousand and one first time it, it says something completely wrong. Mm-hmm. So that that can happen. Um so that being said, there are a lot of very trick, tricky issues when it comes to, to using um, artificial intelligence in warfare. I think at that point, the agreement among most people that work on that is saying you can use some artificial intelligence in, in, in the military realm as everywhere else, but you should never delegate the decision over life and death to a machine, even if it could be 100% accurate. And it most likely can't. Mm. And I, I have a follow-up question mm. to that, which is more about now that we're talking about more philosophical questions, ethical questions. How do you think artificial intelligence will change the nature of conflict? Because we're seeing today how even just cyber development and hybrid wars are changing the way we conduct wars and conflicts. It's not about invading a country necessarily, but it's about um, undermining a democratic system through cyber attacks, etc. So, do, do you think, if we're thinking more maybe longer term, if we have Soldier 2.0 that is more of a machine or that is a robot or anything, mm. do you think that we'll have less war or more war if human <laughs> beings are not dying in war, or will we be in a constant state? Of conflict and no one will really know whether we're at war or at peace do you think the the definition of peace and war will become blurred Mm -hmm. so as someone who works on the future of war i guess i have a rather conservative view when it comes to the question of whether technology can really change the nature of war Um, it can change some of its characteristic characteristics but in my mind I see war as having different levels and I think humankind which with every kind of new technology adds another level so we may now have wars that start as you say with cyber war Mm -hmm. or that start with potentially autonomous drones entering another country's airspace and starting to bomb uh, the country that could be a, a start for World War III if you like the thing is in my mind all of these scenario scenarios still go down all the levels that were there before and kind of end up with people dying in the mud somewhere so i don't i absolutely don't believe in this idea of you know having that we're gonna have wars being fought exclusively by robots mm-hmm. kind of material schlacht by by, <laughs> by definition you know you let the robots fight it out and whoever wins mm. um is gonna 
is gonna win the war. I mean, if, if we were willing to do that, we could have wars over chess. We could toss a coin. We could toss a coin if we're willing to do that. We're not willing to do that. So I think I think even if even if we have widespread use of some kind of autonomous weaponry in our future conflicts, in the end, you're still gonna have people dying somewhere in the mud. So it doesn't make war any any more surgical or any nicer. But of course, I, I, I would, this was the scenario to kind of World War Three, where, where people really um, um, are involved in the end. And I think yeah. also if the, the fact that people die in the mud is what both prevents some wars, but also Hopefully. is what, what states use as a bargaining chip. And, and, mm. and I think that eventually, even if we hadn't, you know, this is what you're talking about before, about if we input the rules in the, of war, the laws of war into an AI machine, You'd have to have a lot of confidence in your opponent. And by the point you get to war, you're not going to have that confidence. You'd have a lot of confidence in your opponent that the opponent would have programmed their autonomous weapons, their systems in the same way. Mm. Eventually, mm. everyone's going to try and cheat the system because war is horrible and brutal and should be avoided at all costs. And I think that all I think the, the big impact I think this has is that it lowers the threshold for war. It lowers the threshold. So you, the same way that we talk about It lowers the war, threshold for intervention, yes, intervention I'd say, so, right? Yeah. yeah. And also I think it comes down to we talked about before about a lack of regulation, a lack of international agreement about what these things are. So for example, we see, you know, Russian information warfare and hybrid warfare constantly at the thresh just below the threshold of what we've traditionally mm -hmm, understood mm -hmm. to be war. But and we're not we haven't agreed yet. Once we graduate and we're gradually starting to in you know, terms of NATO and the West generally, but also the rest of the world are starting to talk about What constitutes a cyber attack? What constitutes information warfare? What constitutes the breach of existing norms? And I think when we get to the point of, of understanding AI and its impact on, on, on warfare, we'll eventually just be in the same position where we'll have an idea about what constitutes war and what doesn't. If, if there is an international consensus, yes. but it's also possible that different countries will have just different definitions of what, you know, an AI is, of what a lethal autonomous weapon is, of what conflict is the same way today the cyberspace is being sort of challenged by different definition of international law but to a degree the strong powers are the ones that get to decide this because yeah. nato for example in terms of a cyber a cyber attack now nato gets to decide what it constitutes as an article 5 i.e a collective defense response to a cyber attack the rest of the world might not agree with it but nato kind of gets to decide what it believes to be that now so it doesn't require an, an overall international consensus on this because at the moment it would re just require you know, a group of like-minded countries to kind of agree on this. I think. So, so then will the countries leading the AI race get to also write the rules about <laughs> what is AI and how you can use it? Then mm. it's really just the winner takes it all. And it's about, That's it's, exactly what Putin uh, is, yeah. is telling his school yeah. children. And if you, if, you kind of, if you kind of agree that eventually we will get to a point where we regulate, and obviously we've talked about how that might not be true, but if you believe that eventually we're going to regulate, Obviously, it's about getting as far ahead as possible before that point that you get to have skin mm. in the game. Sure, and that, that has always been true, yeah. right? The same all, with nuclear yeah. weapons, yeah. Man, where Absolutely. everyone you know developed until they, they only agreed to to regulations once they were to the point where they said we can we can. And use then look this. how annoyed yeah. look how look how annoyed countries that were not mm -hmm. as technologically mm -hmm. advanced are now that they exactly. don't have those capabilities. And, yeah. You yeah. know the, you know, the nuclear non-proliferation treaty and this you know the five <laughs> official nuclear weapon states and. And the way we talked about in the last episode, which you should listen to again. It's really yeah. good. <laughs> It's really good. And um, I mean, I think I think you mentioned something very important. And we are we are slightly mixing different topics here, which I think is unavoidable, but a bit tricky because you also mentioned cyber, which of course is 
related to AI to some extent, but not the same thing. And we keep talking about drones. But one of you, if you both of you mentioned this blurring between war and peace um, and, and what really constitutes wartime and what constitutes peace. And this is already something we are seeing, right? Um, and we, we're seeing this with, with cyber attacks. As you mentioned, we have a constant uh, level of cyber attacks. We're kind of wondering, I mean, is this, is this an attack? Should we, should we invoke Article 5 mm. now or not? Um, and uh, this has been called a, a non-peace um, uh, by, by, I think it's Lucas Keller who said, who calls yeah. this non-peace, um, or you know, that kind of hybrid space between, between war and peace. And we're seeing this much more, and the same with drones. I mean, these, for instance, the US drone, drone attacks in countries they're not at war with, what are these? So overall, I think this is where we are headed. Um, everything that, that, that you know, AI is doing may contribute to that or not, but overall, I think this is, this is more where we headed in general and i think i mean we've been so sort of negative on this at this episode and not quite as negative well as your podcast is called things that might what do you expect that's wine and food you know lighten up the mood i do think we can be sort of uh, we should remember that, that you've talked about this already okay that we've had these technological developments before yes it is probably a little bit more transformative now because of the nature of it but uh, you know when nuclear weapons were being developed people probably thought that was going to completely transform the world and we eventually regulated and we eventually start to... Kind of did things. transform geopolitics yeah. though, right? But then also, you know, we, we, have t- we have been able, even when international politics has seemed terrifying before, like, you know, like in the Cold War, we've been able to do this. So I don't think it's difficult and for all the reasons we've mentioned here this evening, but I don't think we should give up hope. No, and the one thing I would really like to emphasise, um, the range of possibilities on this goes both ways i mean yes yes that might kill us you know singularity all of humankind dies or you know much easier than that because we fight world war three over ai and, and kill us all and um, that that's a possibility but i would like to emphasize that ai may also save humankind i mean really if you think of, of general ai really good ai that can for instance solve Problems such as climate change mm-hmm. or, you know, other other issues, um, uh, eradicate illnesses, things like that. So AI has an enormous potential in both directions. And that's why I'm saying might kill us, might save us. But what we know is that it's going to fundamentally influence many of the things that, that we're doing today and are taking granted, for granted today. So we just need to think about this more and inform ourselves about this more because some of these issues really are tricky, but they do... Um, influence us all in the end positive note to end on and before we do end I want to say I think this has been like a really fascinating conversation and we're incredibly Mm. appreciative of you spending an hour with us and I mean I did cook her food as well so I feel like it's you know (laughs) coming all the way to South (laughs) (laughs) but it's been um, it's been great and definitely more questions than answers much like I think every one of our podcasts will have (laughs) but um, important questions and I think we I, I know I do, and I think Alice is the same, that we have, I think we better understand which questions we need to be asking, mm-hmm. both of ourselves, both of our friends, but also both of our policymakers and our politicians around the world as well. So um, thank you so much for coming. My thank pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Things That Might, and please do let us know if you've got any ideas. You can send us email to uh, thingsthatmight at gmail.com. Rika, how can people contact you? Well, Twitter is always fun. I'm, I'm uh, at, uh, at Rike Franke on, on Twitter, so that works. Otherwise, my email is on our ECFR website if you 
interested enough, you can certainly find it and contact me that way. And, and if, if you see a hashtag killer robot, that may be Italy. <laughs> you could you could call me out on that one. Oh yeah, and if you find another game of of drones, uh, you can send me that one, and I'll call it out in name and shame. Great. Well, I think we should go finish this bottle of wine. Um, and until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to Things That Might Kill Us, a podcast by Joe Dobbs and Alice Piangalon. Music's by Juanitos and graphics by Chris Beck. Please rate and review on your podcast providers and tell your friends.